following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. Hi, Scotty here. Uh, we're joined in Studio 8 here by Ellie Gilbert. How are you going, Ellie? I'm going well, thank you, Scotty. Yeah, great, great. Uh, how, would you, how would you describe yourself? Um, I call myself a filmmaker cool. these days. And you've been uh, doing a lot of travelling lately with uh, looking at the, uh, the Northern Territory intervention. Yes, I've just been up to Darwin and out from Alice Springs out to Yurupuntja, which is Utopia, and on Bladowich, where the people have walked off to get away from the intervention. Right. And they invited me to film their meetings with the... Faxia consultations. So Jenny Macklin set up consultations. Should I just say a little bit about that? Or we um, go back to... We'll come back to yeah, that. Yeah, okay. yeah. Right, now I guess to um, to set the whole thing in, in some really, really broad context, <laughs> I guess uh, we're looking at, what, 220, 30 years now since whitefellas sort of set foot here and started, uh, started overrunning the place and do you have any idea how long it sort of took for them to sort of move sort of from east to west, I guess? And I think it really took 100 years because the area I was just in, Utopia, um, there's an old man there um, in his 80s and an old lady who they believe is between 90 and 100 and they remember the killing times. So they were the times of first contact. So, yeah, it, it took the... The colonialists didn't cross the Blue Mountains until the early 1800s. Mm. So, yeah, it was a steady sort of spread west and down the rivers and along the exploration tracks. That's right, because the Blue Mountains were a real barrier to them, weren't they? Yeah. yeah then they got so into Wiradjuri. Well, Wiradjuri, they declared martial law against Wiradjuri. Wiradjuri is like the central portion of New South Wales. Okay. It goes from Lithgow right across to Boolagal. Includes the Murrumbidgee and the Kalara River, the Lachlan, and parts of the Murray. So they were resisting and were actually pushing the um, shepherds or the stock back off the, the rivers. And um, I know for the Bathurst region and west of Bathurst, it was three magistrates who asked the governor for martial law. So martial law was declared in 1823, which then meant everybody could kill Wiradjuri. The army, police, farmers, the lot. Declaration of war, essentially. Yeah, but they never would declare war. That's <laughs> part, of the, part of the trick that they played. Whereas when Philip came out, his commission was um, that he came out under the rules and disciplines of war. And the historians don't mention this. They say his brief was um, to conciliate the affections of the natives. But I was minding an exhibition once next to a library up in Toowoomba, so I pulled out the historical records of Australia, started at page one, and there it is, Philip's commission. He came out under the rules and disciplines of war, and the historians don't talk about that. And Mm. that's, you can only declare war against sovereign people. And they have to be people on the land to declare war against. So it, it totally knocks out the whole terra nullius argument. Mm, it's a real heavy implication of sovereignty, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, right. So I guess as they were uh, moving across, you mentioned uh, the killing times. There was a lot of killing going on, and uh, they they also took uh, took the people away from their land. Um, how how did they go about that? It was it was like a process, as I understand it, as we all sort of have to piece the past together. But it was um, a pretty major onslaught. So for Wiradjuri, it was the 40th Regiment. And we still need to find the documents because the official story is, well, they didn't have any horses and they didn't go very far. But that's pretty hard to believe. And so part of it was military. But then um, even the landholders would, you know, Kevin wrote about it, uh, Kevin Gilbert in uh, the book on sovereignty, he's saying how people were starving and so they would be invited in for a feast and then be shot at the feast and just horrendous stuff. And that's why when people call it a genocide on this land, it's not wrong to say it was a genocide because we've had those killing times and they tried to exterminate everyone. It's in the literature, they tried to exterminate. So the intent of genocide was there. And then I can talk most about Wiradjuri because I married in, but after after the killing didn't, times didn't work then they poisoned the water holes poisoned the flower which is pretty horrendous thing so as our kids grew up Kevin he he would never let them play with an empty tin in the bush or an empty bottle they're never allowed to sniff it or play with it and that's a legacy from the fact that it could have strychnine in it and there's um, early landholders in Forbes of the Strickland brothers and one was friendly with Aboriginal people and the other one they called him Stricko because he used to put the strychnine out for the people. So there was in a way, it's it's not too harsh to call it ethnic cleansing, that's really was what was going on mm. and then when that didn't work they um, they started taking the children and that's what Kevin always said that's what really broke the spirit of the women when they just took the children and so the policy now is assimilation. And after the 1967 referendum, which enabled Aboriginal people to be counted in the census, in 1969, there was a, a meeting of all the heads of government. And we've got the cabinet minute where they've said, we will stick to our policy of assimilation. We know it might take generations, but we will patiently persist to assimilate. So we have one Australian society. And that's where we're up to now. The the assimilation agenda, no matter which government gets in, which party gets in, they just then get locked into one agenda of assimilation. And then to put the spin on it, you know, they have song and dance routines and they want Aboriginal people to sell their art, so it's looking all okay. But the agenda is that there's no support f- really for what's... Um, the heart of the culture, the ceremony and law and all that, that's not to be supported. Yeah, well, I guess the, the whole culture, really, um, one of the major blows, I, I, I guess, of, um, of moving the kids away was, was just the, the loss of traditional knowledge and culture. That, I guess, do they, do they use that sort of thing now in the, in the land rights sort of uh, I guess in the in the law courts it's brought up a bit whether you've got traditional knowledge. Do you know much about that? Uh, to win native title you have to um, prove that you have continuing tradition, culture and law that can have 
adapted over time, but it has to have adapted from the original. But because it's an oral culture, it's all a bit of a construct because who's to really know <laughs> what was really happening a hundred years ago or more. But native title requires at least one person to have physical connection back to the land. And, I mean, the old way was certain people were chosen to carry the law and to carry the the culture and different people have different bits. So it's not like it was a flock of sheep and everyone had the same, which in a way is what White Australia wants to make it. Mm-hmm, certainly. But certain people had extra knowledge. Yeah. Mm. Right, so I guess... Um that that moves through and people white people settle the land and then um well aboriginal people are sort of in missions or, or little little out out sort of towns outside towns how 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 has the policing sort of gone from i imagine we're in the white australia policy we're in sort of complete empire mindset on the part of the the white fellas um how did the black guys fare there well from what i've heard um First of all, people did stay on country on properties. They would work on properties or go droving or pea picking or like with Wiradjuri, they were fruit pickers. So they kept a cycle going through the orchards, but it meant they could keep on the country and they could get together. So there were different ways of adapting to what happened. I think it's fair to say there was always a healthy... um, wariness of police because the police were the front line of oppression and I interviewed an old man at Condo who's just passed away and he was saying it was shocking what would happen where if people had no money they'd just be picked up they could just be standing on in the street be picked up for vagrancy and carted off to Bathurst jail Mm, I think the same same thing happened in the uh, in the United States during the sort of the pre-war and, and between wars things yeah that's a, a a common little trick isn't it you got no money you're in trouble and that was like when the embassy started here in canberra in 1972 it's chicka dixon who ensured that everybody had some money in their pocket so they couldn't be picked <laughs> up for vagrancy you know and that was 70s and yeah. then uh, and then they you know they policed the curfews um so aboriginal people had to be out of town come sundown and even my experience with Kevin, you know, we would get humbugged by police for no reason, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, you don't even have to be black to do that, but I yeah. bet it helps a hell of a lot. Yeah. Deaths in custody is a fairly current issue still. I mean, they had the um, the Deaths in Custody Commission. What what brought that on? And um, I guess just follow through into whether anything's changed. Yeah, that was triggered um, by the John Pat killing in West Australia. I believe, and then there was a committee to defend black rights in Sydney and people started pooling all these stories of deaths in custody and the community believed a high proportion were murders. And to me the tragedy of the... There was then a royal commission into deaths in custody and not one officer was found guilty of anything... And Christabel Chamaray was the senator at the time and she tabled a paper that was written by one of the law researchers for the Royal Commission and she said, I can only say so much, otherwise I'm in breach. 
but I can say this and I can say this and she was basically indicating how evidence was manipulated and the tragedy out of that then as as I saw it was um, there was then like an acceptance that it was suicide and that's not culturally that's not an Aboriginal thing suicide and then because no one was found guilty it was almost as though the community accepted they were suicides and then internalized it and we now have one of the highest suicide rates in the world and it's all happened in those last 20 odd years and mm. and so the kids just call it turning off the sun and and it's really well, you know what people call unexpected consequence or that's what that is. And and all those recommendations that came out of the Royal Commission into deaths in custody, they haven't been implemented. And, that, and that's, you know, that's why people lose, f totally lose faith in government processes. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, not surprising really. So I guess another... Um I could just add to that. Yeah, uh, yeah. When, when we were sending submissions over to the Committee for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, I asked um, one of the forensic um, doctors who worked, he would, if there'd been a, a killing in jail, he would go in and examine. And I asked him if he would write a paper to send over to the CERT. And he said, well, I can't. But if I did, I would say the hooks are still all in the cells. So even they had revamped the cells and supposedly made them suicide proof. He said the hanging points are still there. Well, you know, that's uh, hardly suicide proof, is yeah. it? Mm, well, it's sort of almost intentional, isn't it? So I guess another a big report of, of fairly recent times is, of course, the Bringing Them Home report. And um, can you just say a few words about that too? I can. So, um, yeah, it's a pity to bring out, bring out all these horrible things, but yeah. uh, it's good to get in context what we're talking about. Yeah, that was released... Um, at the Reconciliation Convention in Melbourne. And a reconciliation's been a very difficult process for grassroots because it's the wrong word. But it was after Kevin had died and I've been out of things for a while. So I went down just to see who the players were and that's when all this was being released. So I saw it firsthand and um, the conclusion was removing children from the group is an aspect of genocide and it fits the five definitions of genocide and that's one of them and as people know Howard was atrocious <laughs> so atrocious that people turn their back on him um, but the removing of children they try to sort of say it stopped in the 70s and we were all saying no it's still going on and now if you really looked at the stats you would find it's going on as much if not more than it did with those generations they're talking about. And that's, well, that's what we're right. dealing with. We're dealing with an assimilation. It was in, I think, yesterday's newspaper that there's 40 children in the last year been taken in Lightning Ridge alone. Wow, yeah. yeah. And I know there was something like the 11 families in Cooma and there's only one that hasn't had children removed. You know, so it speaks volumes. So it's pretty sinister and it's very subtle and it's very hard to get a, a fix on the whole thing. But um, uh, even the title, Bringing Them Home, I mean, what's home in that context? Is home bringing them home to white Australia or is it taking them home to 
their Aboriginal family. I always found it a bit ambiguous, that title. Well, I guess there's uh, another event that you mentioned before, the uh, the referendum. Um, what, what was the referendum? All of us young folks under sort of 40 or so, we weren't there. So. That was in 67 and it was a move, like we always say, mainstream Australia is supportive, really. And it was one chance for mainstream Australia to show support. Um, but it ended up being basically a vote for whether Aboriginal people should be entitled to go into the pubs and drink. That's what it boiled down to and all the offers could say, yeah, of course, mate, is. you know. Um, but it ended up, um, up until that point, Aboriginal people weren't counted in the census. And is, is it true to say that they were counted under the flora and fauna sort of act? I, I don't think they were even counted. Right. Uh, although the police, it's not quite true because the police always monitored the movements. So, like in the 1930s, the numbers were building up in northern New South Wales and the ceremonies were building back up. And that's when they went in and cut down all these ceremonial trees. Like there was a, It was like a temple, about 130 trees all carved with the equivalent of a temple or the Rosetta Stone or, you know, in, in the Aboriginal way. And they just went in and cut the lot down to stop the ceremony. So, yeah, they knew, they did know how many, but they weren't counted as citizens. And and then, as our old Kevin always said, that was a unilateral act, making Aboriginal people citizens, to fall in under the colonial regime, whereas it was never a choice of the people. Of course, it wasn't a referendum of Aboriginal people. Yeah. Mm. I guess partially sort of due to the, the changing knowledge of the public and the the obvious support for Aboriginal people throughout the mainstream sort of demonstrated in that referendum the the political mindset's changing and they're beginning to recognise problems, there is a problem within sort of Aboriginal community and blah 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 and uh, what are their responses to that? I guess sort of things like the ATSIC and um, Well the Aboriginal Embassy had a, made a big impact mm-hmm. so that was when um, McMahon was going to give 25-year leases for Aboriginal people to their own land and that's when they got angry and our old Kevin and helped trigger it but also um, Michael Anderson and the other three men that went down have died now. And that, that sort of got international attention because up until that point it was always a domestic issue and so you couldn't really push it very hard. Whereas the embassy opened it up to international awareness. And then when the police moved in and just acted like Gestapo, just shocked the world. And so from that flowed a lot of things like the legal service, the medical service, children's services, breakfast programs, all these self-generating, self-independent sort of moves. These are sort of set up autonomously by the communities? Pretty much, there was there was support, and um, but triggered by communities, and then they often got government funding to keep them progressing. And and what Howard did when he came in in 1996, he immediately took away 400 million dollars to all these self-determining organisations, those that were in the infancy of becoming self-determining. He just pulled the rug out from 
just about all of them. And Aboriginal Affairs hasn't recovered from that. And I know we'll talk about the intervention later, but that's just like the, one of the big nails in the coffin that they're hammer, trying to hammer in at the moment. Yeah, that's right. And then uh, I guess a bit later on, Howard was certainly uh, concentrating on leases again, wasn't he? Um, it ended up being... Uh, I think they played the race card at the last minute with the intervention and it just went totally over the top because they could and it's the surprise for all of us was that Labor has continued like we we actually believed they would have halted the intervention when they came into power and then started dismantling it whereas the opposite's happening they're mm. rolling it out and still rolling it out and for some reason, well, I think we know the reason, but there's no compassion there. There's no humbleness to say, okay, it might be wrong. Should we start talking? It's just rah, rah, rah. We're going to keep going the direction we know best. And and this review that they're doing, um, well, they did, PDU did a review and made recommendations and they didn't really take them aboard. And now they're going around consulting because... They want, they've been criticised by the United Nations, the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, quite, for, for a diplomatic move it's quite severe, so they're saying you have to reinstate the Ra Racial Discrimination Act and you have to do it by the next sitting in Parliament, which is coming up in October. So they're sort of caught in a catch-22 where they want to keep the intervention, but it's racist, uh, but they've got to bring back the Racial Discrimination Act. So. What's happening is Jenny Macklin and her family, community services, housing and Indigenous affairs bureaucracy has sent out four teams of consultants to all these prescribed areas. So there are four teams going on at the same time, trying to do all these consultations before this next sitting in Parliament. And I've filmed three of them. And it's like the only way to keep the intervention and bring back the Racial Discrimination Act is to call it a special measure. But they've now... And that's what Bruff was saying, it was a special measure, but you can only have a special measure by the consent of the people. They have to want it as a special measure. So these consultations that are going on are pretty dodgy. And I was at um, on Bladderwich, which is about 250 k's northeast of... Alice Springs and the guy conducting that was Brian Stacey he's head of the intervention in the Northern Territory now for facts here and he would say things like well we want to know about such and such but the government thinks it's good they didn't even give people a breather to say anything <laughs> you jump in straight away but the government thinks it's good <laughs> and we've got it all on tape so uh, and the people I was invited to film it so the Faxi people, they scribed that meeting and sometimes I hardly took any notes and some were, at the best it was longhand. There was no tape recording, or easy to tape record a meeting, but nothing. Um, so now the people have their own record of that meeting and, and, and they've, they can mm. refer back to it. Well, that's good. That's good to have. Yeah, at least one side's got a record. <laughs> Dear. Uh, it doesn't sound like particularly uh, effective consulting. Well, uh, now that we're in the intervention, I mean, um, how did that start? I believe uh, oh, it was uh, in response to the, the Little Children a Sacred report. 
Um, tell us a, just just a snapshot of that and and what the response actually ended up being. Well, there've been all sorts of reports over the years that governments have ignored. The little sake children are sacred report um, focused on um, child sexual abuse, but only in the Aboriginal world, and that's what people fail to look at. There's no comparison with the level of abuse in white society. Or, say, in the Christian world. Or done by priests, people in positions of trust. So, basically, they haven't got the evidence. I was up in the Territory when, um, two years ago, when the police were saying, look, this report's hearsay. There's no actual factual... (laughs) People haven't been tried or proven. A lot of it, the majority of it was hearsay. And I think in the long run, it'll turn out there's actually less, there's probably less abuse if we're going to make comparisons. There's certainly probably not more. But it was what the government, they were pretty desperate. They thought they might lose the election, so they played the race card and they hooked up onto this. And they rushed through this legislation, which Malbruff said they put together in 48 hours, but that's not true. They had it planned. They tried to bring it in apparently a few years before, but wasn't going to work so they sort of they had it at least partially prepared and they've always said it was for the little children a sacred report but the 400 pages of legislation does not mention children once you know so the Mm, community was quick to see through what was going on there were some recommendations to the uh, little children a sacred report too weren't there yeah and and they were ignored basically so it, it was a bit of a furphy but it was used um, at the time the intervention was actually became law, on the same day the newspapers were talking about uranium deals to, I think it was India and Russia, and the communities have always connected it to exploration and mining. So in a way, I mean, people get worried if they, they call it the conspiracy theory, but I say, well, I'm 100% conspiracy theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it's no secret that um, the government of Australia is very capitalist and it's it's highly connected through lobbyists and uh, directly as well through, um, well, a lot of the businessmen are uh, also politicians, you know, in, in their different lives and on board members and stuff. And there's certainly no secret that, uh, that mining and, and the whole economy, which is just making money at any cost, is... Uh, is right up there among their priorities. I, I don't think you could really call it a conspiracy. It's pretty plain. Yeah, that's right. So they rolled out the intervention, um, but really it's... When you stand back and look at it, it's actually martial law because they use the defence force to do it. And I challenged one of the guys in the UN. Um, he was from Faxia, Bernie Yates. And I said, you know, do you realise what psychological impact that has on the people and he said oh it was only North Force which is like the Aboriginal component of the army I said no it wasn't (laughs) you know he had Major General Chalmers there were actually tanks on the road because I filmed them they didn't go into communities but I always wondered if they were connected and I'm 99% sure they were and there's the army going in, and the people were terrified because at that point they were going to do sexual examinations of their children, which is totally illegal. And and people have gone back to that terror, and, and people have come through those killing times and all the trauma of 
stolen children and and whatever, and it just you know puts people back into that. Yeah, well, fear we haven't mode. haven't gone into it in. in any gross detail or anything, but there were really horrific stuff going on within living memory. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Where I was with the, um, this community, it's in the living memory, um, definitely. And and I mean, the legacy of stolen, this you know, forcefully removed children is is here today. It affects every family. Certainly, mining is one of the big industries that may or may not be connected with this sort of thing, but. Um, it I ends up being a, an industry for bureaucrats as well. Like the money that's gone uh, into the yes. intervention. Um, like to date, not one Aboriginal house has been completed, but Jenny Macklin was asked in Parliament, I was listening last week, about the houses, and she can stand up and she can still say, oh, 90 houses have been built in the Northern Territory, but they're for the police and for the general business managers. They're built for the white bureaucrats. And there's still not one house after two years built for Aboriginal people. Mm, now, I guess this is this is an interesting issue. This this goes back a long time, and it's, it's I guess by the right wingers, it's called the Aboriginal industry. Um, can you sort of explain how I, you might call it foreign aid into the Aboriginal areas works? Well, I think Wilson Tucky put it the best. No, it wasn't Wilson. Well, um, Bill Heffernan. Bill Heffernan put it the best when something was happening at the embassy. And he said they've worked out the stats and eight cents in the dollar get down to Aboriginal people. So all the rest gets siphoned off by consultants and bureaucrats and the figure's eight cents in the dollar. So, so it's that only 92% going somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, which is a lot of money. And even to the degree where out of the black budget, that's what they call the black budget, they fund, they put money in to fight legal cases against native title claimants. And that's considered part of the budget? That's part of the black budget. They pay for the legal fees, and I know that for a fact with the Wilson versus Anderson case up in Gadooga, up that way, northern New South Wales, where Michael Anderson couldn't get any funding for lawyers, but the National Farmers Federation got $1.4 million out of Attorney General from the black budget to fight him, you know, so... Well, what are some of the other sort of responses? I guess the CDEP got uh, got canned in the uh, in the intervention. Yes. What, what was the CDEP? That was the Community Development Employment Program. So it's basically work for the dole, uh, which was a pretty poor setup. But as always, the communities adapted, and they used it. You know, and they would get equipment. Um, people could work flexible hours. It did a lot to run um, aged care and some of the art centres, um, rubbish collection, um, carpentry, you know, repairing houses. And, and it, it turned out working for the communities, some not in all areas, but basically, you know, there were things for people to, to, to be a part of the community with and, and earn a bit extra and Malbruff wanted to um, quarantine the incomes he was convinced everybody were alcoholics and couldn't look after their children and then when he realised he couldn't do it if people on CDP because it was classified as a wage he scrapped CDP which is just absurd and so the, the other thing I found out um, just going back to the houses 
like in some of these communities, the house is like a tin shed and you might have a flexible number of adults, anything from five to 20, and they would collect rent from two adults per house. When the intervention came in and people money was quarantined, Centrelink would take $50 rent out of everybody. Just arbitrarily? Everybody. So houses with, which could still be a tin shed out in the desert, if there were 20 adults in it, would collect, it would be $1,000. And it got to the ridiculous stage when these old people who still live in humpies, their own humpies they've built themselves, were being charged $50. So when I was at Utopia and these old ladies were talking about humpy, humpy, rent. I said, would you want us to come and take some pictures? Yes, they go. So in actual (laughs) fact, they'd stopped collecting rent, but they've never had a refund. And the guy running the, um, working for the Shire there now, who who had been collecting rent uh, for the council, they'd they'd collected something like $130,000 a year when people were paying. And then the intervention comes in and charges everybody. So he worked out they would have collected something like $200,000. But that money went through to the Northern Territory government, filtered back to Barclays Shire, and they then get $70,000. So there's a $130,000 shortfall lost in the system. Somewhere. <laughs> and yeah, he was, he was, you know, he spoke about that publicly, so it's okay to talk about it. Mm, so what, what's the, uh, you mentioned income quarantining. What, what's going on there? Um, basically, anyone who was living... When the intervention came in, it covered 73 communities and they were called prescribed communities, so their boundaries were in the schedule. And So anybody living in that community when the intervention came in belonged to that prescribed area and they had their income quarantine, which meant that half... They still got half their money and the other half, they had to tell Centrelink where they wanted to spend it. So they could choose Woolworths or Kmart, put money on electricity. They weren't allowed to have mobile phones. They weren't allowed to buy tobacco or grog. Um, and what happened? And what happened was the stores had to be licensed under the intervention in order to accept these cards. So a lot of the local community stores ended up getting closed because they didn't meet the standard that the intervention wanted. And people were having to do ridiculous things like drive 600 k's into town to to shop at Woolies or Kmart. <laughs> Just so they could buy food. Buy food. And, and one lady spoke, she said, you know, her... Her auntie lives out on one of the islands and she would hunt and not spend any money on food and use all her pension money to travel with. And she can't do that now because they've said, no, you've got to blah, 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 spend it on food and children. And um, So it's, it's, a, it's a gross um, abuse of people's um, privacy, really. And a place like Tungandjira Council in Alice Springs, which is managing the town camps, they already had 830-odd people on Centrepay. So people were voluntarily organising their money on Centrepay. So, you know, they pay their rent, they pay the electricity, they pay this and that, radio rentals or whatever, <coughs> and, and spend the rest. And, and that's the whole thing with the intervention. You don't have to 
have an intervention and martial law and send in the army and terrorise people just to make things work. And, and with no consultation, that was the, the horrendous thing that's really upset people. It was just totally imposed from above and there was no consultation to the degree that when people came down last January from Alice, and it takes a lot of effort to get people down, and they wanted to speak with Jenny Macklin, and I think they managed about three minutes. And, and it's so insulting. And then I sat in on their meeting in one of the Senate rooms uh, with one of her advisers, and he just sat there with his book closed, looking bored. And, and no wonder people get angry, you know. Mm, how do you combat that sort of thing? I mean, Well, they're resisting. There's a group now that's walked off out of the prescribed area, down Bloodwich, that's north of Utopia. And they're saying we're not going back. We're two years of the intervention and we're walking through sewage you know, and you're not fixing it and you're not doing this and you're not doing that. And they've gone bush. They've gone back out bush and they're living behind the windbreaks. And yeah, wow. And uh, how <laughs> has there been any response to that from the, uh, the government side? Or? Um, I haven't heard them respond yet, but it's what I believe supporters are waiting for is for when people stand up strongly. Um, and so there's now a campaign to support them and, um, you know, to raise some money so they can get a bore working and, and help them be self-sufficient on their own country. Mm-hmm. And is there any way the general public can, uh, well, there will can be, support them a little bit? Well, I couldn't open my computer before I left, so I haven't got the address, but the oh, main leader is Richard Downs, and he's the main spokesperson, and he's coming down here on the 9th of October. So we're going to show some, have like a film night, and he'll come, and so people can catch up then. Mm. We'll, we'll send out the d- times Month later. of October, stick that yeah. in your diaries. Yeah, yeah. cool. Uh, well, that's good. I mean, um, yeah, what other sort of uh, good solutions and sort of local, sort of, I guess, community-based stuff are, are popping up out there? There's, there must be heaps out there. Well, so many things have succeeded, um, only to get pulled down again. And a friend of mine worked in ATSIC and he was talking to the, one of the guys high up in ATSIC. He said, what do you do? He said, oh, I'll just set up programs and knock them down again. And that's pretty much what's gone on. Um, like in the 1990s, we went up through the centre. And I really wanted to see this nursery at Tennant Creek because they were then supplying the homelands. They had firebreak trees, uh, firewood trees, windbreak trees. They had species of grapes, strains of grapes. So there would be fruit for 12 months of the year. People could leave them unwatered for years and then go back and they'd still have fresh fruit. All this really good stuff happening. Got there only to find Atsika pulled the money out of the nursery. It takes a long time to get a nursery working. Given it to the main community down the road and some non-Aboriginal person had bought the nursery. And there have been so many stories like this where communities have actually made things work on their own terms and then for one reason or another it gets it gets knocked down and then it's harder again to get things started. Mm. Do you reckon that that is a result of having the government funding perhaps? Or, or is there other ways that the government gets around this and pulls the rug out as well? It's primarily government funding, I would think, yeah. And, and I mean, the, the art industry's been extremely successful. And they've done surveys. The most tourists come to Australia to engage with Aboriginal culture. 
you know, and so the actual, when you talk economics, in the past, Aboriginal people have been the backbone of the agricultural industry. Australia grew up on the sheep's back. I reckon the sheep were uh, looked after by the Aboriginal people. Yeah. So I guess there are there are many many troubles out there in Aboriginal communities. Um, I, I guess the, the government doesn't actually go and ask the the locals, the Aboriginal people, on a, on a regional sort of basis, or even just on a town basis, what the problems are and and how it might be solved. Has that sort of thing happened? I think it used to happen, but it didn't happen with the intervention. Hmm. And it also takes, it's a time factor where for communities to reach a consensus, like now it's, now the top end has joined with Central Australia and they're all, there's like a consensus now, the intervention's not on. And even Gullaroy Unipingu supported it first up, has had to change his tune because his people have said, no, it's not right. And, and really the guiding structure now is this UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which Australia opposed <laughs> vehemently, <laughs> um, but has finally in, endorsed it. But it's like the framework of the way forward. It's not full rights. It's a minimum standard of rights. But it, it's a really good framework to, to work from. And right at the moment we've got the... United Nations Special Rapporteur on it's called The Situation of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms for Aboriginal People, Indigenous People. So he's out here, he's Professor James Anah, he's an Apache Indian. And right now he's um, flying back to Darwin. He's been in Canberra, Adelaide, Perth, Central Australia. He went out to Yundamu. Uh, he's going to Bagot Community in Darwin this evening. Uh, and then he's off to Cairns and Sydney and back to Canberra. So he's got a press conference in Canberra at the National Library on the 27th. So it'll be interesting what he reports back because he's looking at Australia's interaction with Aboriginal people here within the, conf within the framework of this Declaration of Aboriginal Rights. And I advise everyone to Google it uh, and really read it and try and understand it and see how far we've got to go to even get to a minimum standard of rights for Aboriginal people. And and it goes back to the whole colonial construct where um, when at the end of apartheid in South Africa they were saying it's the end of colonialism and we'd say, hang on a moment, no, it's not. <laughs> we're still alive and well here in Australia. And I think that's what... The media's at fault as well, but people can educate themselves. Um, we're still in a colonial construct and to get out of it, we, I believe we have to work from the premise that Aboriginal people have never ceded their sovereignty, which then leads either to um, a treaty, and a treaty is these days under international law is between sovereign nations, uh, whereas the treaties uh, in America were often contracts, they were not treaties. Uh, or the other way is a peace accord where you put both sovereignties on the table and under international supervision you then negotiate the way forward. And sometimes it seems far-fetched, but that's really where we have to get to because we have a window of opportunity now where we can solve it, but that window doesn't stay open forever. And as you probably know, the kids are leading the resistance 
they still have enormous respect for the old people and the old people guide but they majority are not going to assimilate they've seen what happens now when parents and grandparents were, were tried to be assimilated and we have an enormous number of young kids in the Aboriginal communities and very few old people by comparison um, whereas in the non-Aboriginal world we've got not not so many young kids and lots and lots of old kids at least I've seen the stats from the Murray-Darling Basin that's the case it's a total mirror image and it's I believe it that's why we all work so hard we, we we work for a peaceful solution but that door for a peaceful solution won't stay open forever well what, what do you think uh, listeners can do to uh, to help a bit Either wedging the door open a bit longer or um, getting something shoved I think it, people living in Canberra, lobbying, I mean, lobbying is the key one. Get to the politicians and get to the ones like Xenophon and the ones with the balance of power at the moment and, and really try and convince them um, that it's we're not, go, we're not on the right track at the moment. And there is a track, there is a good track. And that's the whole thing people tend to forget. Um, there is a good solution at the end of all this where we don't have to have racism and we don't have to have division and we don't have to, you know, have white supremacy in this <laughs> day and age. <laughs> uh, and also um, there's a small group, um, working group for Aboriginal rights, um, people want to join that there's an email contact contact wgar at gmail.com and so that's just like a loose network of people um trying to make a difference i guess they they sort of bring out a media monitoring service um through the email yeah and that's really um been very successful so if people want to join up to that you just write to wgar.news at gmail.com and then a friend of ours he does like um, he just trawls the media every day and then every three or four days he puts out a summary and we've got a website wgar.info so all the newsletters are archived on the website and it's becoming a huge resource and wherever I go people are saying god it's so good you know so, um, yeah, so certainly if you want to educate yourself it's a fantastic sort of spot to just go and see what's been reported yeah and the focus is on the intervention um, because that's all one person can manage but if there's anyone else who wants to focus on another set of rights uh, and, and do the same thing you know we're, we're cross-cultural cross-gender cross-age the whole lot <laughs> It'll all fit just, in, yeah. yeah anyone who wants to um participate are very welcome and i guess it's just worth saying with that one it doesn't necessarily focus just on the media does it it's got reports from the un and all sorts of other stuff too yeah yeah and so when one thing we did was when um kevin rudd went to meet with obama someone had suggested um we send stuff to obama so we we got about 20 communities across west australia and the northern territory actually wrote you can there's an email address for the white house mm -hmm. so they actually wrote directly to the white house and then i was thinking well how's obama ever going to see this and someone phoned up and said oh, Lee, i've just met someone who says he's friends with obama and 
can just phone him up. I said, well, check out if he's for real. And she phones back and she said, yeah, he's for real. And, you know, he told me who he was and he'd worked on organic farming in India and he'd known Obama for years. I said, well, just ask him to please tell Obama to watch out for these emails. And who knows whether they they really get through or not. But it gave people so much, um, again, another energy. The fact that the president of the U.S., might even listen to what they're saying mm. and then within a fortnight Australia was in front of the Human Rights Committee in New York which that oversees the um, International Convention on Civil and Political Rights and so um, we sent all those statements and summaries to there as well and then it was in a week, within about two weeks of that that Australia endorsed the UN Declaration and so they're all just, all you can do is create pressure and the more people who do that, the quicker we'll get to a solution. And that's what a friend of mine from Sweden sh- said. She said, Ellie, it'll happen faster than you think. There comes a point when everybody flips and they want to be left on the wrong side. And every now and again, I think it's going to happen, it's going to happen, and then it all sinks back down again. You know? <laughs> but there will come a time when, when Australia can see f- for herself who she is. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, yeah, well, I guess you've been at it a long time, and um, how, how do you sort of keep your keep your hope up and keep your sort of momentum going? Uh, a lot, I of, think a lot it, of activists listening to the show, I hope. Um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I run on my husband's lines, where I have absolute faith in the people. There's such an inner strength in the people um, who know how to survive and. Once again, these are people who've maintained diversity in the ecosystems. There are very few cultures in the world that maintain diversity. Mm. The majority tend to some form of simplification, whereas Aboriginal people in Australia have, have maintained, in, in the traditional way, have maintained diversity and, and this enormous facility for survival. So they've survived all odds. And I believe that resilience is deep, deep inbred. And that's what will pull people through. And, and I mean, we're looking at climate change. Aboriginal people have survived climate change. They have stories for um, when the river flowed between <coughs> Montague Island and Naruma. They've got the story for when that was the riverbed. And I saw a painting in the National Art Gallery by a guy called Charlie Jungarai, and he painted the ice cave but he was from Papania, so he's painting the ice cap, part of when Papania had an ice cap. West of Alice Springs, there, there was, there's, a bit, there's a mountain out there and it had an ice cap on it. And But this guy's painting Ice Cave Dreaming, so he's got the story of when the ice was there. You know? <laughs> and, and it's really, we just, it's just a mindset switch in Australia. It's not that hard. And that's the whole thing. We, but the People got to get past mainstream media and start looking for themselves. And the information's out there, really. Um, but you've got to educate yourself and and link up with people of like mind. And well, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, I'd just like to add that um, there's a book been written recently called Black Politics, and one of the conclusions was governments have tried everything but what Aboriginal people have asked for. And she particularly mentions mild husband Kevin Gilbert's ideas of the way forward and it's the one way that has never been tried. And I think that's 
I believe it's the way forward, um, where we respect Aboriginal sovereignty and understand that the Australian government actually does not have a legal title on this land. And to resolve that, there has to be negotiation. But for that to happen, Aboriginal people have to get to the stage of health. It's very hard to negotiate from a position of disempowerment. Well, that's right. I guess if you're always responding to some sort of crisis after some sort of crisis, you're just maintaining yourself and you can't really concentrate on the, uh, the job of the future. Yeah. Whereas in really Aboriginal people still hold the trump card and education and people understanding the true position here, I believe there'll be a successful resolution. Um, people don't want to go back to the, the violence if they can help it. And I don't think anyone wants that. So we have to work hard to understand what the rights are and what the real situation is and take it from there and not keep hiding it and denying it. We have to face it and go forward. Okay, Ellie Gilbert, thank you very much. Thank you, Scotty. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and radio behind the lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au that's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A.org.au or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.